Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Seeds and Weeds podcast, brought to you by Small House Farm. If you're looking to celebrate plants and the people that love them, then this is the podcast for you. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Bevan Cohen. Hey friends, welcome back to the show. We got a special one planned for you today. We're going to be sitting down for five questions with Leah Webb. And this was just an amazing conversation. We talked about her book, Seven Step Homestead, healthy eating, seed saving, fruit trees, all sorts of groovy stuff. When this episode airs, Heather and I are actually going to be out in Ventura, California for the National Heirloom Expo as we celebrate heirloom vegetables and the wonderful people that grow them. We're going to be uh, running the seed swap all three days of the event, so I'm sure we'll have lots of cool stories to share when we get back in a future episode. Now, before we hit this interview, quick shout out to our latest Patreon subscribers. We've got E Miner. Connie Kay, and Rachel Helms. Thank you all so much for your support. Remember, it's our patrons that help make the show possible. So if you're interested in supporting the show, check out all the benefits for our subscribers. Herbal gift boxes, heirloom seeds, free books, and lots, lots more. And you can sign up for as little as $3 a month. You can find that link at seedsandweedspodcast.com or down in the show notes. Again, big thanks to all of you. You know, I really don't have the words to express my gratitude here. That's kind of why we send out so many gifts to everybody. You can also check out our Seeds and Weeds Facebook group. Um, join our community over there. And that link again is going to be down in the show notes. All right, here's the interview. Leah Webb is an avid gardener and edible landscaper residing on her three-quarter of an acre urban homestead in the mountains of Western North Carolina. Her practical approach to whole foods cooking and gardening is inspired by the complexities of raising two children with unique medical needs. Today, Leah is joining us on the podcast to answer five questions. Leah Webb, my friend, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Bevan. It's nice to talk to you today. Now, before we jump into it, could you just tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and the work that you do? Yeah, I guess you would call me a homesteader or a small scale homesteader. I live on three quarters of an acre in a urban community right outside of Asheville, North Carolina. So I'm not working with large, large acreage, uh, but I do produce a substantial amount of food. And then uh, we have chickens and, you know, I really have just tried to make the most out of a small amount of space that I have available to me. And I teach gardening. I offer workshops. I have two books the grain-free, sugar-free, dairy-free family cookbook. And then my newest book is the seven-step homestead. Um, and in my teachings, what I try to help people do is kind of set themselves up in a in incremental stages that are more manageable than trying to bite off some huge goal that ends up being more than they can chew. Um, so that's a big part of what I do. And then I also offer edible landscape installations for people. So going to people's homes, removing existing landscaping, and then replacing it with things that are edible. Man, that's awesome. Let's dig into these books a little bit. Now, they seem just from the titles to be very different books, right? You've got the grain-free, sugar-free, dairy-free family cookbook, and then the seven-step homestead is more of a gardening guide, but they are kind of related in a way, aren't they? They are, and that's a great observation that they are so different, um, yet they also are you know, very similar in that a lot of the re my motivation behind gardening has to do with health. And I think that gardening gets you outside, it gets you moving, bending, lifting, squatting, out in the sunshine 
online. You're more connected to nature. You're producing some of the freshest foods that you possibly can. Um, you know, so gardening is multifaceted for me and really just kind of has this wide range of benefits. And so the book that I, the cookbook that I wrote, my first book, that's about the diet that we followed pretty strictly for about four years to address the health needs of my kids. My son was born with pretty severe food allergies and asthma. And my daughter has cystic fibrosis, which is a genetic disease impacting the lungs and pancreas. And food has always been incredibly important to me and something that I've prioritized and valued. But it became even more important when I realized that my kids needed that nutritional support to help them with these ailments and to help them with these conditions. And so uh, the grain-free, sugar-free, dairy-free family cookbook, even if this isn't a diet you're necessarily interested in following, my objective for that book was to make whole foods cooking simple and to teach people that you could cook these nutritionally dense foods when you did have limited time, when you could just get organized and, and do some meal prepping and planning ahead of time so that the process of preparing food wasn't so overwhelming. So the cookbook is really about how to eat a lot of vegetables and how to do that frequently and make it you know less of a chore because we all know that cooking from scratch can be really tiresome. And so that was my first book. And then my second book is also a bit of a planning book in that the seven step homestead teaches people to start small, start with a manageable size garden, and then gradually add on to that garden as they gain skills and as they feel comfortable with the workload so that they're not biting off more that they can chew. I love it. So you've got the book that'll teach us how to grow all the vegetables and then a book that'll teach us how to cook all the vegetables. Totally. And I wrote them in the opposite order, but that's exactly what I've done. <laughs> that's awesome. I love it. What I really love about the seven step homestead is that you've taken what can seem to be a daunting task and broken it down into, well, seven steps, right? Making something large into smaller pieces makes it easier for people to uh, approach it, feel more comfortable with it and learn how to do it. And we don't want to get into any spoilers, I suppose, because I want people to, to buy the book and, and read it. But could you you share a couple of the steps with us so we can see um, sort of how easy you've, you've made this process? Yeah, I'd love to. And don't worry, there won't be too many spoilers because I definitely cannot share an entire book in this short podcast. <laughs> um, but the premise behind the book came from the garden consultations that I've offered over the years. And and people see on Instagram and Facebook and social media, all of these different media outlets. And even when they go to these events, like how you and I have met, how we're at Mother Earth News Fair, and you see these amazing speakers who are doing these incredible things. And you think, wow, that's what I want. And the problem is that we're not quite sure. Most people are not quite sure to get from point A to point D or E or F even, right? Like all of these amazing homesteaders and gardeners have been working on building a skill set for decades, most likely, right? I've been doing this for 20 years. I imagine you've been doing this for quite some time as well. Quite some time indeed, for sure. It's a long process. Yeah, it's a long process. And think about all the failures that you've encountered along the way. And so when you can take whatever finite amount of energy that you have and concentrate it 
into a small amount of space, you're going to have far less failure and far more success than had you taken that same amount of energy and diluted it over a large amount of space. And so what I always recommend, and this is what I recommend in the book, is that people start with two small raised beds. And in that first chapter, I teach you only the information that you need to execute and be successful with having two small raised beds. Once you are comfortable with that and you're ready to expand, then you can expand into 400 square feet. Once you have 400 square feet and you have more growing space, then you're able to add things like potatoes that are fairly easy to grow, but they take up a lot of space. It wouldn't necessarily make sense to be planting potatoes when you only have two small raised beds that are something like four, you know, four by eight feet. And so through the steps in my book, I take you through small bed, 400 square feet. Um, At one stage, you add in edible perennials and flowers. You add in four season growing. Uh, Chickens are going to be the final stage. And, And what I recommend people do when they're using this book is that they start with two small raised beds, and then they work their way up to 400 square feet. And then it's a little bit of a choose your own adventure because each of these chapters and each of these stages has its own unique skill set. And it really just depends on what it is you're interested in, right? So if you're super jazzed about adding fruits, adding perennial trees and shrubs and things like that, then go ahead and jump to that chapter. But make sure you get the basis for gardening, right? Like make sure you get the basics right before you start expanding so that you don't overwhelm yourself and find yourself with this massive garden that's too neglected and too overwhelming. Oh man, I totally dig this. You know, this is a great book because inevitably people, you know, we get so excited. We just jump in. We take on too much right off the top. I see that all the time. And then people get frustrated and confused and and then they kind of get turned off to gardening a little bit. So this is, I wish that this book would have been around years ago for me because I'm one of those people, man, I jump right in and take on way more than I should at any given moment. So I like, I like that slow burn approach to it to really start with that foundation and really get started understanding the principles before you try to expand. That's, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. And it's easy to jump in because this stuff is fun and it's exciting, but it's also a lot of work. The success that you get feels so good. It's like, oh, well, I got a little bit of success. So let's just keep going, going, going. But then you find, yeah, you find yourself overwhelmed and you find that you just can't manage everything that you've committed yourself to. And I do it too. And I still do it. I'm actually in the process of downsizing my garden a little bit. I realized, you know, I am producing insane quantities of food and I just really can't preserve it quick enough or eat it fast enough. Enough. And, you know, so I think that a uh, garden is a dynamic entity. It's not this static thing that you set it up, you build it, you forget it, you know, that whatever you build now is exactly what you're going to need for the rest of your life, because you're always changing, you're always changing, your garden's always changing. And so I think if we can just remember that the garden is a dynamic opportunity to always shift and change that we're just going to enjoy it so much more and we're going to have so much more success. And at the end of the day, it's it's about enjoyment. We want to have fun out in the garden. Totally. Because I mean, there are many, many benefits you get, but you know, it's unlikely that people are going to be a hundred percent self-sufficient. You know, when we were self-sufficient, we were actually doing that in communities. And so I encourage people to really get clear on their why as to their gardening efforts, right? So it's because you enjoy it. You want the fresh foods. You want your kids to be exposed to 
these things. You need more exercise. You want to beautify your landscape, right? These are all really good reasons to be gardening. And so if you can focus on those whys as your goals, then you can adjust the size of your garden to meet those goals. I love it. All right. Let's play five questions. I got a list of five questions here. They're very simple, no follow-ups or anything, but this will give our listeners kind of a chance to really get to know who you are. Uh, So the first question for you, Leah, is if you had to pick a favorite plant or plant family, what would it be and why? Oh, this is tough. Okay. I'd have to say legumes, beans. I love the huge diversity and variety of dried beans. So specifically dried beans. I'm not talking about green beans or fresh beans. Dried pole beans. I grew a new variety this year called Good Mother Stallard. And I am just always amazed by how interesting and cool these different beans can be, right? You go to the grocery store, you have navy beans, pinto beans, black beans, right? That's pretty lima beans. It's like that's the extent of it. But there are hundreds and hundreds of varieties of beans and they've just got this great storage capacity. You know, they store so well for even years and then they're so easy to grow and just so fun to harvest as well. That is an excellent choice. I am also a big fan of beans. Love them. Um, almost obsessed with them. Uh, we have here at Small House, we, we maintain a lot of different dried beans. We have in storage, I think, 250 different varieties. Whoa! Yeah, and that's just a fraction of the beans that are out there. There's thousands of them. And they're beautiful. You know, they're gorgeous. But like you said, they're very functional. They're they're an important crop to have, you know, as a staple food. Um, they're nutritious. They're easy to prepare. They're easy to grow. That's an awesome choice, beans. They're also fun for kids. I manage a learning garden at my children's school, and that is one of their favorite things to harvest are those dried bean pods. I've also noticed it with kids that have some sensory issues that when they start playing with beans, they're in it. They're like, man, these things feel great. (laughs) Yeah, just digging your hands into a big bowl of beans. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Yeah, exactly. All right, so here's for your next question. Could you please share with us a little bit about a recent garden Success. I'm not going to talk about my beans because that's what I want to say. I would actually say growing arugula over the summer. Okay. Yeah. So arugula is one of my favorite greens and I've found it to be incredibly finicky because it really likes to be chilly, right? I have my best arugula in the spring um, and then again in the fall. And then I can even grow it in the greenhouse over the winter and even grow it outside some in the winter as well. I'm in zone 7A, so we're fairly warm. Um, But I actually for breakfast was having arugula um, that I had started over the summer. And so it really, that, that, that I felt like was a garden win. That's a win for sure. I love arugula too. Um, but arugula in the summer, like you're saying, is not something that is easy to get your hands on. That's a success. I dig that for sure. Let's flip the coin then. And what is a most uh, recent garden failure, a failure that you've had recently, but more specifically, what is a lesson that you've learned from a recent garden failure? Mm, that's a good one. Well, I'd say this is actually a failure. It's a mistake that I made. And I'm not even sure it's a mistake, but it is a failure that happened years ago that is now just showing up and it's in my fruit trees. Um, I live kind of in a, here in, in the Southern Appalachia, we call it, I live down in a holler. So it's wet. I live along a Creek. We are a temperate rainforest. We get loads and loads of rain. And so trying to grow fruits organically is really challenging for me. It's just very wet. We have lots and lots of fungus. It attacks all sorts of things. Um, and so I have replaced my fruit trees now twice. And this 
last replacement happened about three years ago. And I selected all dwarf varieties, knowing that I wanted to try to keep the trees smaller so that if I did need to have some type of organic treatment, they'd be easy to reach and all of these things. And my peach trees that were only supposed to be eight feet tall are now looking about 20 feet tall. So I'm not thinking that they are dwarf. Um, And so the lesson that I have learned here is to always give plants like this more space than you think that they're going to need, regardless of what the plant tag says. You know, I really only gave them about 15 feet between trees. And now I have these giant, beautiful peach trees that are right on top of each other. I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do about that. Um, So I think in the future, I would just really try to make sure that I'm giving things more space than they need when it comes to these perennial trees. Yeah. You know, and that's a lesson sometimes even that I experience with my annual plants. Um, Sometimes I get a little too excited and I'll even put my annuals too close together. When they're little plants, transplants going out, you know, they seem so small. Sometimes if I'm not paying attention, I can definitely overcrowd things. I have no idea what you're talking about. I would never do such a thing. (laughs) All right. We're just going to sidestep around that then. Let's move on to the next question. What is a current project that you're working on? Something that you're very excited about? All right. A current project that I'm working on that I'm very excited about is actually this garden downsize project. I built my homestead on very, very limited funds, right? I did this as cheaply as possible. And the way I think about it is when you're building a garden or a homestead, really any project, time is money and money is time. So when you don't have money, you have to invest a lot of time. And when you don't have time, you have to invest more money, right? That's it, There's a trade-off. And so at the time when I built everything, I really had no money to invest in this. And I did this as cheaply as possible. And what I've seen over the years is that there are things that I could have done had I invested a little bit more money, um, such as installing irrigation, right? I live in a temperate rainforest again. And so irrigation isn't necessary all the time, but there are key moments during the season where irrigation would really just make things so much simpler for me. Um, And so part of my downsize in this project is that I do want to, I want to slow this down and I want to spend a little, I've got some money to invest, right? Not huge amounts, but I want to focus on things like bowl protection and raised beds and weed control and irrigation and working on growing smarter, not harder. And I think that this is inevitable that you have to build things with the resources that you have. And then through that, it's a learning experience. And then you learn what works, you learn what doesn't, you learn where it would be worth to invest more money, right? So it's not like I messed this up. It's just that this is a this is how you learn is that you invest what you have, and then you see where you could really fine tune things. And so this overhaul that I'm working on is probably going to be realistically, it's going to be a two year project, because you know, it's it's going to be slow, but I'm excited for it. And that I've learned so much over the last decade, especially that I really really want to concentrate and fine tune my efforts and try to make this a little bit easier on myself. I like that. That is exciting. You know, to be able to see what you created long ago with the resources that you had and now 
tweak it, you know, tune it in with the resources that you have available. And like you said, all the things that you've learned in the meantime. Um, so you can really, you know, dial that garden in just how you like it. That's, that's very exciting for sure. Thanks. I can't wait to see where it goes, but again, you know, it may, may even be three years till this is done, but like always give yourself more time than you think you're going to need. Right. So give the plants more space, give myself more time and probably budget more money. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. These seem like the lessons to learn, right? <laughs> totally. All right. Now, what is a project that you're not personally involved in, but you're still really excited about? So who is your shout out today? Okay. So I would say that my shout out is actually going to be to, um, you are part of it. So small house farms and Amy, Amy Rose Fowl, and then, uh, Ira Wallace. I saw the three of you give a presentation on seed saving and it was really inspiring to me. I do minimal seed saving. I do a little bit, you know, but I, I do have a small amount of space and I do grow a lot of different varieties. And so maintaining genetic integrity can be difficult with, you know, small amount of space and way too many varieties. But listening to you all tell these stories about the people who had saved the seeds and the effort that goes into this and just hearing your excitement around this, everyone's excitement around it. It was really inspiring to me. And so, for example, this year I am saving more seeds. I've got more bean seeds that I'm saving. Um, I'm saving a couple of squash seeds. I've got, um, I, I do have golden phasalis is a, have you ever grown this? Do you know about it? I have not. Okay. I should bring you some seeds. Um, this is a type of ground cherry, but it's larger and so much tastier. And the ground and the cherries don't actually fall to the ground when they're ripe. You pick them off of the plant. Easier to harvest, tastier, all the things. It's a really, really great plant. And so I've been saving seeds from that for a few years now. Um, so I think just hearing somebody else be so excited about seed saving helped me get excited about it and make me want to put more effort into this. That's a groovy answer. I don't think I've ever been involved in somebody's shout out before like that. That was awesome. I'm so excited that you got excited about seed saving. That makes me feel really good. I did. That was such a fun presentation. And then there was the seed swap and the seed sharing. And um, I'm growing some of the seeds that I got from you, some of the seeds that I got from Amy. Amy's corn, actually, it got totally devoured by um, squirrels. So and it was growing right next to another variety of corn and they really took hers out. So, wow, it must have been good. <laughs> Must have been delicious. Too funny. All right, Leah, that's the five questions. So for folks that want to connect with you um, and all of your work and check out your books and those sorts of things, what are the links that they're going to need? I am leahmweb.com and leahmweb at Instagram and on Facebook. So I'm pre I'm fairly easy to find. Awesome. I'm going to put those links down in the show notes for folks so they can find them down there as well. Uh, Leah Webb, thank you again for being on the podcast with us. That was totally awesome. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. It's so good to connect with you. And I, I look forward to seeing you at more events in the future. And that's another show, my friends. Thanks again for tuning in. And thank you to Leah Webb for being our guest today. Remember, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can always join our Patreon. That link and many more can be found at seedsandweedspodcast.com. This episode was edited and produced by all of us here at Small House Farm. And the music you're enjoying right now is called Carlos by Less FM. I'm your host, Bevan Cohen, and we'll see you next time.
Howdy, friends. Bevan here. You know, the Seeds and Weeds podcast is made possible in part by Baker Creek Heirloom Seed Company, rareseeds.com. They're America's top source for rare and heirloom varieties from around the world, and they're publisher of the Whole Seed Catalog. Their 2024 catalog is chocked full of heirloom goodness, new varieties, recipes, stories, and gorgeous photographs. You can order yours now at rareseeds.com.